Hello with the Side of Knowledge listeners, it's Ted. Welcome to this special bonus episode of the podcast. We're going to go out on a limb and assume that you've heard Election Day is next week. It's kind of hard to miss. And while we don't have a new election-themed episode for you, we did release two interviews earlier this year that we thought would be worth combining into one supersized pod now. Not only because they're still timely, but also because the guests have an interesting connection to one another. So we'll start out with the episode on reporting and politics, which came out on June 11th and features Robert Costa of the Washington Post and Washington Week. In the course of listening to it, you'll get a preview of sorts of episode two with retired Notre Dame professor Bob Schmuel. But first things first. From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge, the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. And if you'd like to keep up with the show in between episodes, you can find us on Twitter, and now Instagram too. In both spots, we are at with a side of pod. For this, our season three finale, we're turning the virtual interview chair around on Notre Dame alum Robert Costa, national political reporter for the Washington Post and the moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS. While Robert's work is the news, we talked more about the craft of journalism generally, and political journalism specifically, than everything going on in our country and our world in 2020. I figure you have much better outlets for content like that. Outlets like Robert's own reporting and that of the journalists from diverse organizations and backgrounds he talks to on Washington Week. That said, the health disparities magnified by the coronavirus and the recent examples of police brutality are just the latest reminders of how much we need the work and perspectives of African-American journalists in particular. So while it's not directly related to this episode, I wanted to take a moment here to recommend you follow Richard Jones and Victoria St. Martin, formerly of the New York Times and the Washington Post, respectively, and currently shaping the next generation of journalists through their work with students at Notre Dame. We're putting links to both of their Twitters in the notes for this episode. And speaking of episode notes, there's also a video of the late Tim Russert there that you're going to hear Robert talk about. It's one of many great stories he shared on pursuing a career as a reporter in the nation's capital during a time of rapid change in the news industry, a journey that for him has included succeeding the legendary Gwen Eiffel at PBS. He also used the provost office at Notre Dame to illustrate how anonymous sourcing works. You know, in case I ever really need to get anything off my chest. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Take good care, and I'll be talking to you again soon. Because sources close to the podcast tell me there might be some bonus episodes on the way this summer. Robert Costa, welcome to With the Side of Knowledge. Great to be with you. So you're not only a national political reporter for the Washington Post, you're the moderator and managing editor of PBS's Washington Week. And most people are probably familiar with the role of the former, of a moderator, but have less of a sense of the latter. So for Bob Costa, moderator, to go live Friday nights at 8 o'clock, what is Bob Costa, managing editor, doing, say, today? We're recording this on a Thursday, the day before the show goes on the air. It's a good question. I've actually never gotten that question before. It's uh, There is a difference because moderator 
you're the man who, or the woman who asked the questions and you're moderating the conversation. And it's a wonderful job to moderate a conversation. And you're a moderator yourself with these conversations for Notre Dame. And there's a beauty to the conversation. But managing editor is a, a position that in addition to being moderator, you have to make decisions. And after right. three years of being moderator, I had effectively become the managing editor of this program on Friday night on PBS. And what that means is day to day is you're one helping to select the guests, but we, we have a great booking producer who helps me with that. But you're really trying to think through the questions and themes of the week and to take editorial control. So if things go right, you have a little bit more responsibility. If things go wrong, you have more responsibility but it's about ownership of the product. And as a reporter who hosts a show about reporting, I wanted to make sure I was keeping the show in that reporting direction. And it was important for me to become managing editor, especially in these times when reporting sometimes seems to be put on a shelf in the media as the right has its position, the left has its position, and it's all red and blue, uh, pundit versus pundit. There's something that's special to me, even if it's not necessarily always at the fore of American journalism right now, reporting. And PBS, thankfully, along with the Post, but PBS in terms of television has enabled me to pursue that interest, that mission, uh, without any kind of burden or caveat. And I appreciate that. And I also realize that that integrity of the program has to be protected. And sometimes you have to put it on yourself the managing editor to protect it. Right. I, I'm really glad that that you brought that up about this idea of reporting getting put on the shelf and almost being replaced with punditry at times. And people, I think a lot of people on the outside kind of conflating the two and saying, oh, well, they're the same thing. So in addition to your role at Washington Week, you talked about being a national political reporter at The Post. And I think people, they tend to make assumptions about journalists based on where they work a lot of the time. So for some, they see the Washington Post, and they assume you're a liberal. For others, they see that before the Post, you were the Washington editor at National Review, and they say, okay, he's conservative. And you confirmed to me what I thought your response there would be is that, well, no, I'm neither. I'm a journalist, which means that unlike a pundit, your job is to report and present the news in as objective of a way as possible. But you are at the same time, you are a human being. So you, you're of course, you're going to have your own opinions and Politics in particular is an area that that gives rise to those. So how do you separate your own opinions as a private citizen from how you go about doing your, your job every day? When you evaluate a reporter, I would urge you to not evaluate a journalist or especially a reporter on your assumptions of them based on their biography or something you've heard about them or something you suspect about them judge them on their work. For journalists, the work is everything. What you say, what you do, what you write, that is the collective way of understanding who you are, your values, and where you may stand uh, in terms of whether you're an editorial columnist, a provocative editorialist, or more of a straight-laced reporter. And my whole career, I've chosen, it's a choice, And there's not a right or wrong here. Let's be clear. I've chosen to be a reporter. There are some of my favorite journalists, still journalists, are columnists, 
are polemicists on both sides. I can appreciate the power of a a well-written article, a column, scathing, complimentary, whatever it is. But there is a choice you have to make sometimes to be a reporter and to be someone who focuses on the story and delving into it. And when you ask about my own values, it's a fair question. I would actually trace it back to Notre Dame. And my mentor, some people may know this at Notre Dame, others may not. My mentor in journalism is Bob Schmuel, who I believe has been a guest on this program. He has. One of our most popular episodes of all time, actually, was with him. Well, and and Schmuel, of course, he was able to actually have brunch with you, I believe, at the Morris Inn. He was. I just got a podcast (laughs) with you on Digital Connection. (laughs) Schmuel wins again. You definitely had the short end of the stick there. (laughs) But... uh, Schmuel, he, he, I'm so glad I came to Notre Dame, but I'm, I'm really glad I came to Notre Dame to meet Bob Schmuel and Matt Storant, another person in the Notre Dame world who I have a lot of respect for, the former Boston Globe editor. In fact, when I first visited Notre Dame as a high school student, the admissions office told me I should sit in on a class, and the class I decided to sit in on was taught by Matt Storan. It was a journalism class, and they were sitting outside in that area by DeBartolo that's now kind of between DeBartolo and the law school and Storin was going on and on about the New York times and the Washington post and, and different war stories from his own experience. And I was wowed by this, that this working journalist was teaching a course at Notre Dame and it stuck with me, even though Notre Dame doesn't have a journalism program as a major, it has a rich journalism vein to it. And so I came to Notre Dame and I got to know Storin and then eventually got to know Schmuel. And when you look at Storin and Schmuel, most people would probably say at first blush, they're old school reporters, but they're also people who have uh, such perspective in bringing history, morality, their own values and integrity to their job as a, a journalist and to really appreciate different views, to appreciate history and in all these different parts of journalism. And so that approach, the Storin Schmuel way, you could call it, has guided me because I've been at places that have been seen as left, like MSNBC. I've been at places that have been seen as right, like National Review. But my approach has been the same exact thing every time. So look, in life, you can't erase your biography. And I have no regrets about what I've done. And it was things that I thought at, at first were not great career moves, like going to National Review, uh, turned out to be terrific experiences because National Review, I joined them during the height of the last recession in 09. And it was very hard to get a job anywhere in journalism. And to get a job there, I thought I'm going to make the best of this. And I said to Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review, can I just be a reporter here? And he said, that's strange. No one ever really says that to me here at National <laughs> Review. Most people want to be the next George Will. I said, well, that's fine, but I would just like to report on the right. So almost like someone who was covering Notre Dame football for the South Bend Tribune or someone covering Ford and Chevy for car and driver, I decided to cover conservatives as a beat. And that experience, long story short, helped me to have insights I carry to this day about the Republican Party, about American politics. 
I became someone who covered and knew Donald Trump in 2010 and 2011. I knew Steve Bannon when he was a fringe documentary filmmaker in Los Angeles. Never in my wildest dreams would I have thought he would become the chief strategist and nationalist (laughs) of our time for the president of the United States. I mean, Steve Bannon, I still think back to when I first met him in 2011 in Pella, Iowa. He was doing a Sarah Palin documentary. My first impression of him was that he was homeless (laughs) because he had this long beard, raggedy clothes, and he said, I'm Steve Bannon. I said, good to meet you, Mr. Bannon. Anyway, these figures, it's, I've, I've known Bernie Sanders, the Vermont senator, for years. And what politics has really taught me about life and journalism, but especially po- covering politics, is that things move in long cycles. And I'm only 34 years old, but I've seen so much change in the last 10, 12 years I've been a reporter that I, I have a motto of assume nothing because people you think are fringe Steve Bannon, Bernie Sanders, right or left, they can somehow find their way to the center of American political life. And uh, I take that seriously, the idea that ideas change, nations change, people change. Right. I wanted to go back there. You talked a a little bit at the the start of that answer there about the folks at Notre Dame and and mentors that you had. And it's really striking when you look at a program like Washington Week. It's the longest-running primetime news and public affairs program on television, which means you're following in the footsteps of some pretty iconic journalists to be the moderator and now the managing editor. And I know one was including your uh, mentor and friend, Gwen Eiffel, whom you succeeded following her death from cancer uh, several years ago. And I would imagine that given those circumstances, finding out you were going to be the next moderator of the show was kind of a, a bittersweet kind of thing. What do you remember about that? Because on the one hand, it's this, I'm sure it's this huge career milestone, but it's happening for a reason that clearly is is a very sad reason. Well, it was such an honor to get the opportunity in early 2017 to just be a guest host on Washington Week. I had started at the Post in 2014, six years ago. And when I was at the Post, Gwen Eiffel started to have me on her show. And it was a thrill to me to go over to Sherlington, Virginia, which is in Arlington area, on Friday nights, and to go on PBS with Gwen (laughs) Eiffel. And when I first went on that show, it was sitting there with the likes of Dan Balls and great reporters from the New York Times and the Associated Press and the TV networks. And they took reporting so seriously. It it was, I had been on Sunday shows, and I love being on Sunday shows, but Washington Week to me was something very special and different because it didn't have newsmakers. It was reporters only. Gwen Eiffel was always a class act, and she tried to have a conversation that was involving. She had this tendency at times to let guests ask questions of other guests, and you just never really saw that from a moderator. So I learned a lot just knowing her and watching her, and I never uh, expected I would be the host. It's right. the last thing. That, I mean, she was only in her early 60s when she died in late 2016. And so no one expected Gwen Eiffel, one, to die. And, and two, when she passed away, there was no natural person there to be the successor. So they had a lot of guest hosts. In, around early 2017, I had been a guest 
on some of these Washington weeks where they had guest hosts and I was talking to the producers. They said, would, would you be willing to be a guest host? And I said, sure. And I, I said, uh, let's do it next week or something like that. And it came together very informally. Uh, I don't have an agent, which is interesting to some mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. I just naturally said, sure, let's, let's do it. Try it one week. And that week went well. I was just myself and I never stopped guest hosting from then on. And then I became the host in April. So it really was an interesting, it was something that was very, felt very natural because I thought I was going to guest host for one week and I haven't stopped hosting three years on. <laughs> it just kept coming back. <laughs> it just kept, it just worked. Yeah. But it's uh, something I actually, again, would trace back to Notre Dame because when I became the host of, this is almost strange to say, but it's true. When I became the host of Washington Week, I had not been a host of a program before. I'd been on TV a lot. I mean, NBC, I'd been an NBC News commentator for years, at least three or four years, CNBC before that. So I'd had TV commentary analysis experience, no doubt. But the last show I had hosted was a show called Office Hours <laughs> on NDTV at a Washington Hall. Yep. <laughs> and one of my main guests on that program was Father John Jenkins, CSC, who came on a couple times. And he always enjoyed it, I think, because it wasn't a soft interview. But <laughs> he, he appreciated that I was asking tough questions, but in a way that he found he could engage with that wasn't hostile. He wanted to actually, ha- he, he told me once he enjoyed coming on because he wanted to have the tough questions but he wanted to be able to say his side and engage in a conversation rather than having kind of a fight. And sometimes he found with student journalists, it would just be combative for the sake of being combative. And we had 45 minute to hour long interviews. And one time father John, when I was at Notre Dame as an undergrad, he pulled me aside and he said, he knew both my parents went to Notre Dame law school. And he said, are you thinking about becoming a lawyer? And I said, well, I haven't really made up my mind. I thought about business what he was trying to tell me was, don't just go to, to law school to go to law school. And that's something my, my parents had told me as well, even as lawyers. But he said, go pursue journalism. And I just didn't think journalism was a, as much as I was close to Schmuel and Storen, journalism to me still seemed as someone who grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs and had a nice upbringing and good parents and a lot of luck. It still seemed like something that was a little bit out of reach or strange to do as a career. It felt like it's a club in New York and DC. And not, not that I couldn't be part of the club. I don't want to sound like some populist, but you, you do have a sense that, that it's a tight group and that if you're going to be in that group, you got to be pretty good or have some kind of connection. And I, I didn't know if I was pretty good and I didn't really have a connection, but I, I just kept enjoying it. And so I kind of thought I wouldn't do it as a career necessarily, but I kept drifting in that direction. I mean, my hero beyond Gwen Eiffel was Tim Russert, mm-hmm. who Schmuel would know this story well. In 2008, Schmuel invites Russert to give a speech at Notre Dame. And he gives a speech at Washington Hall. And I'm there. And I'll always remember seeing Tim Russert. I think he had flown in on Notre Dame's plane. He comes out of Washington Hall and he's just almost has a glow about him being on Notre Dame's campus. And Schmuel's sitting there in this car to bring him back to South Bend Airport. 
And to see Tim Russert and Bob Schmuel get into the back of a black car at Washington Hall, it was a wow. That's, that's the major <laughs> leagues right there. And because of, I was a NDTV guy, I had a camera in Washington Hall. It turns out I was the only person filming Tim Russert's speech. There was a local reporter there, but they were just jotting notes. I filmed the entire talk, and that turned out to be the last public address Tim Russert ever gave. It was at Notre Dame in 2008. And if any of you have 40 minutes, I'd encourage you. It's on YouTube, most of it, or it's on Notre Dame's website, to go watch that Tim Russert at Notre Dame in 2008. It's it's a wonderful speech. And uh, after he died, Bob Schmuel called me up, and he said, we got to get that video Typical Schmuel, always doing the right thing. He said, you've got to get that video to the Russert family. And we did that. We gave it to Mrs. Russert and to Luke. That's great. He was actually, um, I graduated from Notre Dame, I think six years before you. He was actually our commencement speaker for the class of 2002 as well. So, um, yeah. Something you said there that I, I think is really interesting that in 2008, you were the only person recording this. And... So you've been working as a professional journalist for a little over a decade, which in technology and new media terms feels like maybe 5,000 years, like how much things have changed. So case in point, I just discovered yesterday that I could be listening to Washington Week as a podcast. I didn't know that. And I probably subscribed. So it fits with my schedule very well. But how much in that span of 10, 11, 12 years, how much has the landscape change just in terms of the, in the way as a reporter you go about doing your job the things that you have to consider the way you're trying to get information out I, I imagine it's it's very different than it was even five years ago probably oh it's so different and the podcast point is a good one it's sometimes i'll meet people who quote watch washington week <laughs> but it turns out we have a huge audience that is far more interested in having a few drinks and relaxing with friends on a Friday night than watching PBS, <laughs> which I'm, I understand, but they'll listen to the show as a podcast on Saturday morning. They're the kind of person who rather have wine and not have the TV on on Friday, but will wake up on Saturday at 6 a.m. to take a walk or work out and that they will listen to Washington Week then. So I appreciate that, that part of the audience. So I've been reporting professionally since 2009 when I joined National Review. I was there for five years, been at the Post now for six, been with NBC for about five years, been with Washington Week for three. But actually, I would go back even further. I began as a reporter at age 16 for the Bucks County Courier Times, 75,000 readers, at least at that time, 2002, in the Philadelphia metro region. I always remember that 75,000 readers because whenever I would have to defend my youth and my, my work as a freelancer for the Courier Times, I would recite that. Well, remember, sir, you have 75,000 <laughs> readers in the Philadelphia metro area. But I, I got into journalism, one, because I enjoyed kind of just the idea of reading the paper. I used to love reading the newspaper as a kid. And there was this section that was written by teenagers for the paper, for a real paper called Reality. And I said, gosh, I got to be part of that. And so I applied and uh, I, I barely got into the reality section. But that was the entry into the world. I mean, I'm almost, I'm 34. So you really think about it. I started at 16 and I was doing a lot of writing back then, publishing in a 
paper, concert reviews, interviews with musicians, 16, 17 years old. So it's really been almost two decades. And when people say, how have you done this and that? Well, if you understand it in the context of 18 to 20 year experience, rather than just even the last 10 years, you can understand the scope of how you get to be where I am at PBS and the Post and NBC, that when you start at 16, even if you didn't think it was going to be your, your career, I've been in the reporting world, understanding, and you just learn constantly. You learn by reading, thinking, getting burned, getting great experiences. You just keep learning and learning. And after 17, 18 years, you learn what works in a story, how to pop sentences, how to work as a team, how to handle feedback, how to work with editors. And what's changed to your question? time. I think this is the thing that's going to create some burnout in my industry is when I started at 16, I, I would go to the Bucks County Courier Times and I, some of my friends to this day, J.D. Moulane, a terrific columnist for the Courier and Joe Ciavaglia, a, a local reporter, they would work hard. But journalism was a job where you came in around nine or 10, called some sources. You went to cover a story from 11 a.m. to two or three. You typed up that story from two to four, four to five. It was edited. You were out of there. It was in the paper. And if you, ha- if you worked an evening beat, you wouldn't come in to four o'clock in the afternoon. You'd, fo- you'd follow your story around seven or eight. You'd get in the paper that night or come up the next morning. It was a newspaper mentality. Radio, you had a slot. You filled the slot, and then your day was done. You had a lot more time to prepare, a lot more time to read other things, to talk to people, to have a social network. What's changed so much, and it's hard to process sometimes, is how it's become 24-7 and digital. And that's not a negative thing. It's created more access to information. It enables people like you and me to have these kind of podcast conversations that just weren't part of the equation 15, 20 years ago. But it has a cost because you're, you're doing a lot, especially when you're working for a place like The Post and PBS and MSNBC all at the same time. It's kind of a machine. It's an enterprise, and there's a thrill to it, but there's also an enormous time commitment to make sure it's being done right, and so you're sometimes losing. I often tell myself, make sure I'm reading the full paper every mm-hmm. day, a couple papers. Make sure I'm still reading some fiction, reading some nonfiction. These are the things I tell myself all the time because I don't want to just become totally enthralled to email, Twitter, text right you mentioned the thing there about and this has always been true i think you know for reporting generally for columnists in particular the the sentences that that pop when you're trying to hook people in or kind of spit them back out at the end do you find that with the way social media works now that that skill is even more important that you're trying to you know all of us have been in that that piece where we're sharing this piece of content and it's like, all right, what's this hook that I'm going to put with it that I'm hoping is going to get people to click on it and drive traffic? Is that more important now than it was in the past, do you think? It is for many people. For me, I just realize news drives my social media work. So if I have news or interesting insights, I share them on Twitter and I've been lucky to build up a following of more than half a million people but they're not coming because they love my personality. Some may <laughs> select few, <laughs> my mother maybe, but uh, uh, they're coming because they, they trust Robert Costa is going to provide on his Twitter feed, legitimate news information and reporting tidbits and anecdotes. And you would follow me on Twitter 
I would suspect because as much as I write on the, in the post and I'm on TV, Twitter is my notebook. It's a way for me to share additional information about what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, and, and, and links that I think are important for others to know. And so Twitter, I found, has been very helpful. But I understand that a lot of people have problems with it because it creates this pressure to have a following. And I'm lucky to have these major brands helping to amplify my reporting in addition to my own social media. But it's not, it's, not an, it's not a fair fight. If you're at a small publication and you're covering a beat that's not Donald Trump, good luck getting more than 10 retweets on something. Right. But there should be no shame in that. And the things that go viral for people are often things that aren't necessarily recommended as smart career moves or even helpful to the public discourse. So it's a tricky thing. News value is great. But the pressure to kind of be clever on social media, it leads to people making mistakes. You think about a lot of people in the reporting business who get in trouble is because they're trying to be be too showy on social media or engage in things that are not really their battleground. So just as we're we're kind of wrapping up here, I had two kind of in the weeds process reporter kind of questions for you. And I I feel free to take them in, in either order. One thing that I was just, you know, thinking about sitting there watching Washington Week when you're talking about, you know, you have four journalists on on your panel. And clearly these are also people, they're working journalists. They're very skilled at, uh, for the most part, at conversation, at um, conveying information. And I'm wondering what you do when you're in those moments where if you ever feel like you have an interview or a session getting away from you. And I don't mean in a, oh my gosh, cut to commercial sort of way, but just this is really wandering and going off topic. And I have to keep things kind of some sort of, you know, at least loose kind of focus there. So that's one. And the other uh, that I think comes up a lot when we we talk about journalism these days, you know, phrases like sources close to so-and-so are telling me. It's almost like they become part of the reporting vernacular. And I'm wondering if if you think they should be, how you make your own decisions on whether um, to offer sources anonymity when it's justified, when maybe it's not justified. Um. So to your first question, one thing I've always found as a television viewer of political journalism is I can't stand as a viewer constant interruption of guests. So if you watch Washington Week, I'm very reluctant to ever interrupt. Right. I mean, some people, even when they go, I like I think a, small, a good answer can be between 20 and 30 seconds because it leaves room for a follow-up uh, sometimes answers need to be a little longer if you're telling a story, but a good answer is 20 to 30 seconds, 40 max. But when people start going to a minute, maybe, especially when we're doing these remote interviews now because of the pandemic, I will gently say, that's right. Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> and hopefully they maybe get the, the idea of wrapping up. But I just don't like to jump in because people are watching these shows for the insights of the panel for my insights too. I'm not trying to pretend that's not the case as well, but sometimes I, what's the point of having a guest if you're not going to let the guest reveal some new information. So I think a soft touch is best, but I would also advise guests to remember it's not about you. It's about what's best for the audience Mm -hmm. and the audience should have a collaborative conversation on these kind of shows and be able to learn from you and others there. So if you hog too much time, if you ever watch me on Morning Joe, I'm probably 
or Brian Williams, I'm probably one of the, the most concise, I would hope, reporters because I believe it's better to be concise because it makes the host jump in maybe a little bit more to prod you again or to use your, your comment to jump to something else. And so I always just try to say my piece and then stop. One of the, the real things you need to learn to do as a TV reporter is not learn when to speak, but to learn when to stop speaking. <laughs> and that's an art. And that's, that's that, that ability to just pause. To your other question, it is regretful that so much reporting these days is done on a background basis. And what that means is, if you're not familiar with the terms, on the record means we know your name, we cite your name, we quote you. Background is we know your information and everything you're telling us, we can quote you, but we're not going to use your name. And we're not going to use your name because you've requested anonymity, usually for fear, out of fear of retribution or because you're not authorized to speak publicly. So, for example, if I asked you a question about the provost office <laughs> and I said, who's going to be the next provost, who's going to be, who, who just likes the provost inside the provost office, you may say to me, I can't put my name on that. I would, I would lose my job. And I would say, come on, put your name on it. <laughs> no, I would lose my job, you say. And then you would perhaps say, on background, X, Y, and Z is really happening inside the provost's office. Right. That would be the, the way we go on background. And it's not, it's not preferable. I think people should put their names on things, but we live in a t highly charged political time where stepping out there and sourcing is just not easy for many sources. So I, I, it's not good. I wish it was more on the record, but I understand why we have to do a lot on background. Uh, and I think it's good when reporters cite their reporting, even if it's a background conversation. Some of the words I don't like on television are, I think, I think, I think. Now, the, 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 the less we could use those words, the better. Because what people really want to know is what you know. I know based on what. I know that this is happening in the provost's office based on my conversation with a highly ranked official in the provost's office. Instead of saying, I think this is happening in the provost's office. So the, the reporting is about knowledge and expanding our knowledge of the truth rather than speculation. And so it's good for reporters to talk about with clarity, how they're coming to the analysis and conclusions they're making. Bob Costa, thank you so much for making time to do this. I, I can only imagine how busy you are, so I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, I'm back. Although I guess in a sense, I never left. If you like what you're hearing and can leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, we'd very much appreciate it. It really does help the show, and you don't even have to write anything unless you feel inspired to say how awesome the host is. Now, on to episode two with Robert Costa's mentor, the aforementioned Bob Schmuel. This one was called On the Presidency and Possibility and was released back on January 30th, which explains why we are still going to brunch. We hope you enjoy it. From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. Bob Schmuel, now a professor emeritus at Notre Dame, 
joined the university's faculty in 1980. He was the founding director of Notre Dame's Galvin Program in Journalism, Ethics, and Democracy, and was later named the inaugural Walter H. Annenberg Edmund P. Joyce Professor of American Studies and Journalism. His areas of expertise include the relationship between American politics and the media, as well as the modern American presidency. Bob is the author or editor of some 15 books, the most recent of which prompted our conversation here. In The Glory and the Burden, The American Presidency from FDR to Trump, published in 2019 by the University of Notre Dame Press, he examines the institution that is the presidency, rather than focusing on the individual occupants of the White House. We discuss potential reforms to how Americans elect the president, the path to the present state of our politics, and the sense of possibility he believes the presidency should represent. One note, when you get to the spot where he explains how there were once such things as conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, I promise you you're not mishearing. Bob Schmuel, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Pleasure to be here. You wrote a book about the American presidency, which I would say to people is both highly readable and highly accessible. And the book focuses on the period from FDR to Trump. Why that period? Why was that what you chose to examine? I think we see dramatic change in the presidency over the past 75 years or so. And um, we see it really in the pendulum swing that is now in place uh, in our presidency. What do I mean by that? For the first third of the 20th century, the Republicans were dominant. In fact, you see only an eight-year period with Woodrow Wilson when Democrats were even in the White House. Beginning in, in the early 1930s with, with the first election of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you see that the Democrats begin to take over. And, of course, Franklin Roosevelt won four elections. He's succeeded by Harry Truman, his vice president, who wins in 1948. There is an eight-year period of Republican domination during the 1950s with Dwight Eisenhower, but then in 1960, John Kennedy wins. In 1964, Lyndon Johnson wins. So that you see almost a mirror reflection of Democratic control of the White House. Beginning in 1968, it starts to move back and forth and back and forth. So that um, Franklin Roosevelt's an, a, a very important figure because after his presidency, the government took upon itself the uh, creation of the 22nd Amendment, which limits a president to two terms. And I would argue, and I do in the book, that that has changed how Americans view the presidency. And in the book, I argue that I think we should rethink whether or not that amendment serves a useful purpose. Someone said 
you're arguing that with with Donald Trump um, in the White House. And I said, I don't care who's in the White House. I think we need to look closely at the institution, which is what the book does. Mm -hmm. So much of our discussion of politics in Washington today focuses on the individuals who are president, whether it be Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George W. Bush and go on. What I'm trying to do in the book is look at patterns and trends in the presidency. And I think that one has to begin with uh, Franklin Roosevelt and carry it into the present. So you you talk there about kind of rethinking and relooking at the 22nd Amendment. That's one of the the reforms that you discuss in The Glory and the Burden. There's several others, and they're all obviously of particular interest in 2020 because it's an election year. But this episode is coming out just a few days before the Iowa caucuses, after which we'll wade knee-deep into primary season. So I, I wanted to start by asking you, in terms of those reforms, about the idea of regional primaries and what problems would regional primaries seek to address, and how would you propose that they be organized? I think, Ted, that we need to look at the reasons why we have the Iowa caucus being such an important part of our nominating process. We have Iowa as a caucus, then we have New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and What I say in the book is, what privileges these states? Why are they first? And let's face it, in both Iowa and New Hampshire, the representation is not diverse. By that I mean the electorate is not diverse. In both cases, the states are over 90% white. But what happened is that back in 1968, Hubert Humphrey was the nominee of the Democratic Party. Hubert Humphrey was Lyndon Johnson's vice president. He did not campaign for the nomination. Many of your listeners will remember that in 1968, Eugene McCarthy challenged Lyndon Johnson in New Hampshire. Didn't win, but did well enough that Johnson could see the writing on the wall, and he withdrew. Then all of a sudden, Bobby Kennedy is involved in the primaries. Coming out of the 68 convention in Chicago, the Democrats said, we need a system that is truly small-d democratic. Mm -hmm. That has resulted in this open process with an Iowa caucus, with a New Hampshire primary, and on and on. I would argue that for a national office, such as the presidency, that we should have a national nominating procedure. One of the possibilities would be a series of five regional primaries with 10 states in individual regions. 
And that would mean that over a five-month period, you would have candidates in specific areas of the United States, let's say the West Coast, the East Coast, Midwest, South, mm-hmm. whatever. We divide it up um, so that there are 10 contiguous states in each of the regions. What Beyond that, what I would propose is that the, the sequence of regional primaries not be determined until the year of an election so that someone could not go to one particular area and campaign the year before right. or whatever. Right. And my suggestion is that at the end of the State of the Union speech that the president gives every late January or so, that the then incumbent president, possibly running uh, for re-election, would reach into a bowl and pick the sequence. First one is Midwest, first one is Far West and all. And then the candidates would go to those areas and campaign, and some would um, be successful, some would drop out after the first one or two regional contests. But one, it would be national in scope. Two, it would not privilege any state or region above the other. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, too, because even though when you're talking about a 10-state region that's certainly not the whole country. It is serves as a, would seem to serve as a better proxy for is your campaign going to be able to mount a national campaign because you're trying to compete in those 10 states simultaneously. Right. I would argue that if you drew the boundaries in the correct way, you would have a mixture of large urban areas and more rural, more suburban. Mm -hmm. Let's face it. You look at Iowa. Look at New Hampshire. I I would say, and to listeners too, an interesting aside to this, And your son works on Pete Buttigieg's campaign, and Pete Buttigieg is a candidate doing very well in Iowa right now. So this really, I mean, it, it is an impartial kind of idea of how could we do this better? Yes. I mean, uh, I am someone who doesn't think that any candidate for president would embrace my ideas for the simple reason (laughs) that they want to do well in Iowa and New Hampshire and all. But uh, I mentioned that there is not a great deal of diversity in the electorate in Iowa or in New Hampshire. But there isn't really a large urban area. So one of the reasons why urban problems are never dealt with in the way that I think they should be in our presidential contest is that the people who are winning the nominations never have to face those issues as they are running for the nomination. And once they get the nomination, they go to the big cities, they raise money there, they hope for votes from there. But I'm not sure they address the um, urban issues that are desperately in need of uh, attention. You share several more ideas for reforms in the book, and we don't have time to go through all of them. But one I didn't have a chance to ask you about, we did a live event 
at Iron Hand Wine Bar here in South Bend about a month ago. And it was, I didn't have a chance to bring this one up then, but it was the prospect of eliminating the Electoral College. And in talking about this in the book, you include what struck me as a pretty remarkable fact. It was in 1969, Senator Birch Bayh, who he was a Democrat, correct, Birch Bayh? He was a Democrat from Indiana, mm-hmm. whose son later became both a governor of Indiana and a senator in his own right. Right. So he spearheaded a constitutional amendment that would have made victory on the national level rather than state by state, which is the Electoral College, state by state. He proposed a bill that the national vote would be the standard for electing a U.S. president. And the remarkable part to me was, and you note this in the book, the House voted to approve the measure 339 to 70, and 12 days later, President Nixon endorsed the bill, but it went on to die in a Senate filibuster. And then you note that been approximately 700 attempts over the years in in some way shape or form to eliminate the electoral college what's the what is the case for getting rid of it and was that time 50 years ago was that as close as we're ever going to get to doing it is it even a a realistic Mm -hmm. prospect at this point i'm not sure if it's a realistic prospect but i would offer this uh fact And that is that since 1992, the Democratic nominee has won the popular vote in every single presidential election except 2004. Mm -hmm. So that means in, in 92, 96, 2000, 2008, 2012, 2016. And yet, during that period, we saw in 2000 the victory of George W. Bush in the election that was determined by the uh, Supreme Court. In that particular election, Al Gore won the uh, popular vote. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton got almost three million votes more than right. Donald Trump, but still lost the, uh, the presidency. If we would have another situation, and by that I mean if uh, in 2020 the popular vote winner was not installed and inaugurated as, as president, and that would mean then in this particular century that in 2000, in 2016, and in 2020, the popular vote winner did not prevail. That's a trend that I don't think America wants uh, to see continued. How it might be solved, there are any number of ways that are mentioned in the book, um, I know the one that's kind of interesting is it called the Interstate Voter Compact. Right. What, what is that? That is an initiative that various states have signed on to, which commits the electoral college votes of that state to go to the winner of the national popular vote. Say, let's take Indiana, which has not approved it. Right. But let's just say that Indiana would approve it. It would mean that if a candidate, say a Democrat, 
uh, wins the national popular vote, but a Republican would win in the state of Indiana, the electors from Indiana would still vote for the popular vote right. winner. That's how that compact. And at this point, they have many states that have approved it, uh, but not enough for a majority. Can you, just for someone listening to this, I'm wondering, can you make, regardless of, you know, you're suggesting this is a possible reform, can you make the opposite argument, what the purpose in keeping the electoral college as an institution is? Is there a good reason to keep it? Or what is the best reason that people put forward for keeping it? The best reason, uh, and it makes sense, and the founders realized it, was that a candidate for the presidency of the uh, country should not be able to go to just large urban areas and drag out as many voters as possible to pile up the popular vote, that someone who is running for the presidency should be a person who has appeal not only in cities, but in regions of the country that might not be as populous. So there's a reason, and uh, I can predict that small states, for example, would be Uh, very much opposed to getting rid of the uh, Electoral College because they they have a certain power and influence that they might lose. But what I'm suggesting is that if it becomes the way of American presidential politics that one party or the other keeps losing the popular vote but keeps occupying the uh, the White House, I think the people will uh, finally say, you know, let's figure out a more democratic, a more representative way of selecting our president. And just to kind of close that there, not just losing the popular vote, but watching a trend line, losing it by increasingly large margins. I mean, if if that were the case in 2020, if you had a candidate that lost the popular vote by four or five million votes and still won the presidency, it's not an insignificant, it's not an insignificant thing. I mean, that's, it's becoming a a larger spread in that way. I mean, uh, when you, when you look at it, it's, it's really interesting. In 2016, Donald Trump To his great credit, I would interject, he won in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, those three states, and I believe that's 46 electoral college votes. He won those three states together with fewer than 78,000 votes. Right. That was the margin of those three together. It was the margin of those Three important states. And he, again, to his credit, campaigned in those states vigorously. Uh, I believe I'm right in saying that Hillary Clinton did not go to Wisconsin during the course of the 2016 campaign. A huge mistake on, uh, on her part and the part of her campaign. But 
he played by the rules that currently exist yep. and won. I'm not sure that we want to continue to see the future of this country and its presidency determined in the fashion that, uh, that we've seen in, uh, in some of these recent years. So speaking of Donald Trump, you and I, this episode is coming out, right? like I said, right before the Iowa caucuses, but we're actually having this conversation on December 20th, 2019, two days after the United States House of Representatives, with its current Democratic majority, voted to impeach the United States president for only the third time in the nation's history. Whether or not it's happened by the time people are listening to this, the overwhelming, basically foregone conclusion is that the United States Senate with its current Republican majority, will vote to acquit President Trump of the charges against him, meaning he would not be removed from office. And I would just, as an aside, if things don't turn out that way, you and I will have another breakfast because (laughs) something very unexpected has happened and it's a whole different conversation. But assuming things all play out as all indications say they will, how does this impeachment compare to the other that's happened in our lifetimes, that of Bill Clinton, which, as you noted, in a piece for the Irish Independent this week, was within one day of being 21 years to the day of the Clinton impeachment. But I'm wondering, how are, how are the two similar, and, and how is it different this time? They're similar in this respect, that um, in the book I argue that the, the real beginning of the partisanship that has grown in recent years I date it to 1987 and to the Supreme Court nomination of Robert Bork and the way that he was handled by the Democrats in the, uh, in the Senate. I also note that at the very same time that Robert Bork was being treated the way that he was, that Newt Gingrich, a young member of the House of Representatives, was trying to get rid of James Wright as the Speaker of the House, and he was successful in doing so. The knives came out, Mm -hmm. and the knives have gotten sharper and sharper and sharper. And in 1998, Bill Clinton, having won re-election in 1996... He is impeached, and um, he perjured himself, committed perjury. It was indeed a outgrowth of an affair with a White House intern, the kinds of acts that one would not ever sanction. But there was a certain partisan feeling to that, even though, and it's interesting, 31 Democrats voted in favor of the inquiry of Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't happen this time no, with the not. Republicans and, and Donald Trump. And what I see, and have said so in, on a number of occasions, is that government really has been usurped by politics. 
And what we have now is this gotcha game of my side is going to get you and we're not really thinking about the good of the country. It's what is good for this party, whichever party. And both parties are at fault, and I'm not naive enough to uh, think otherwise. So that I think that this extreme partisanship to the point of polarization, to the point of tribalism, has taken over. And 20 years ago, I used to go around the countryside and give a talk called American Politics at the Breaking Point. And I think the last time I, I did it was about eight or nine years ago. And each time I would say, now look, we are not fulfilling the dream of the founders. Checks and balances are not working. Uh, harmony is not visible. There is a lack of compromise, a lack of consensus, and we need somehow to bring our politics to a more central position. And central and more centered position. And all I can say is every time that I gave that talk, I might as well have been whistling in the wind <laughs> given, the, uh, given the results. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned 1987 as a uh, hugely important year as far as I'm concerned. But one could also look back to 1964, and in 1964, Lyndon Johnson signed one of the great civil rights bills. And after he signed it, he, 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 he was depressed. Great victory for him, but he was depressed because he, he could see that the Democratic Party would lose its advantage in the South. And what has happened is that as the country has changed and our politics have changed, our politics have become more partisan themselves. We no longer see the Democrats having conservatives from the South and more liberals from the North. And the same was true on the Republican side. I'm old enough to remember when there were moderate to liberal Republicans on the East Coast, and then there were conservative Republicans in the Southwest and mm -hmm. some in the Midwest, too. The two parties have become more homogeneous, with the Democrats more on the progressive side, with the Republicans more on the conservative side. And as that has happened, partisanship has replaced comedy, community, consensus, compromise. I fear that uh, this partisanship will continue to inflame and affect our, uh, our politics to the point where uh, an awful lot of people come up to me 
and say, you know, I just don't follow what's happening anymore because it all seems like a food fight among grade school children. I've I've had that in my own family when I've tried to engage people about, you know, why do you think this way? This is why I think, and it and it that becomes a response of, oh, they're just all, this is all of them, and I can't pay attention to it. So yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. So I wanted to end with, um, you referenced this quote from Charles de Gaulle, who was president of France. He said, how can you be expected to govern a country that has 246 different kinds of cheeses? And when you bring that up in the book, you're talking about the media landscape today in particular. And that certainly um, certainly could be part of this answer. But I'm wondering if I could broaden it a little. What would you say to someone who wants to be president of the United States in the year 2020? What can the history of the presidency tell us about how that should be approached? And how do they need to adapt to all these new different kinds of cheeses that we're, we're dealing with now? Because there's, I feel like there's an element where we really can learn from the history, but it is a, there's elements to it. feels it's a very different game today than it was for, for quite a long time. It is a very different game, and it's being played by a very different player. And by that, I mean that uh, Donald Trump won the presidency by appealing to his base. This is a word that came into American, the American political lexicon not all that long ago, the, the base. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump has exploited that. Uh, That is why you see him going around with great frequency to these rallies. Mm -hmm. And he goes to places where he knows he can draw uh, 10,000 people and energize them and mobilize them and hope that they go back and uh, get others uh, involved. And the reason I, I mention it is that it's quite different from what we have seen before. Before a person would win the presidency and then try to do certain things that would bring others along, enlarge the appeal, enlarge the number of supporters, I am (laughs) old-fashioned. One might even say I'm conservative in this respect. I think that's an important element of the presidency to appeal to as many Americans as possible. And I'll give you an example of someone who I thought was quite effective, and that was Ronald Reagan. There were people who would um, criticize quite vociferously his policies and some of the governmental actions. But the way that he presented himself and talked about America, you knew that even if you disagreed with his political views, that he had this larger frame of reference about the country, its role in the world, and what it might do in its future. I fear I don't hear that with... Um, Mr. Trump, Mm -hmm. that 
his appeal continues to be almost exclusively to those who think as he does. And again, is this to is this to criticize him? Possibly, but it's more to recognize how effective he has been within the right. uh, construct, the strategy behind the, it, the right. strategy behind the yeah. Republican Party, because so many of the things that he's done over the course of his time in the White House has been antithetical to what Republicans had done in the past in right. terms of budgets, in terms of viewpoints of this of Russia, in terms of free trade, in terms right. you could go down the line and say, my goodness, is that the heritage of the uh, of the Republican Party? So that I think it's I think it's important, as you said um, earlier, that America's president would be at the forefront of world affairs and that our capacity for leadership, our capacity to lead the world by our values would be emphasized and really sustained. Right now, I don't, I don't see that as happening. So it's a very different time. Now, granted, uh, Mr. Trump is someone who never served in elective office before, right. never served in the, in the military. So we are dealing with someone um, very different from the others who have occupied the office. He has gone his own way. He won that position in the way that he did and that we have uh, explained. But I think from the book we get a, a sense that the American presidency is hugely important. At the very end of the book, I quote Max Lerner, who taught at Notre Dame back in the 1980s, and people would say, uh, Mr. Lerner, are you an optimist or a, a pessimist? And he would always say, I am neither an optimist nor a, a pessimist, I'm a possibilist, because America is the place of the possible. Mm. And I would hope that our presidency would also be a position of possibility and one that would continue to be a beacon of hope and light the way for uh, the world at large. The book is The Glory and the Burden. Bob Schmuel, thanks so much for making time to talk to you about it. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ted, very much. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is withasideofpod.nd.edu.